Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So now we're at step three. Uh, I have prepared myself. I have acknowledged the real history of my suffering. And now I want, I want to understand the impact of my suffering. It's one thing to say these things happen and they're real and I'm going to acknowledge that. It's another thing to recognize the ways that this affects me. Uh, Mike Summers uh, is speaking of a couple that he counseled. And he says, the news that Carol was in a relationship with another man shook the very foundations on which Ron was building his life. In his time of crisis, the things that had, he had considered so important now had no value. And I would say that is the effect of almost every crisis in our life. There is this sudden shift in what is really important. All of a sudden, everything that was really important to us yesterday, before we knew any of this happened, doesn't seem like it matters in light of today and what is happening. And the big struggle is simply to find out what is really important now. And I find myself, whenever I give attention to something that, that is secondary or tertiary, I begin to feel guilty over that and say, should I really give my time to that? Whenever I give my attention to something, I start to feel fearful and think, is this really where I should be giving all of my attention? I start to feel angry that I have to assess my day this much to figure out what is really that important. And then I really begin to feel depressed because I don't think I'm ever going to get it just right enough. And when you hear that, it begins to explain that generalized sense of feeling disoriented and overwhelmed uh, that, that makes my emotions just so chaotic. Uh, now Gary and Mona Shriver, in terms of understanding the impact, uh, they say husband and wives are often shattered after the revelation because they believe they knew their spouse so well that the person could never have pulled off having an affair. Uh, the infidel is also astounded at his or her own ability to lead a dual life, to separate one life from the other. Usually both people are really surprised at the level of deceit and cover-up that has gone on. And that is, that is one of the bigger impacts, is just how surprised we are at each other. There are, there are several things that determine the impact. One is the type of sin. In, in false love, we covered this progression of sin all the way from objectifying a person in this private narrative lust, public uh, visual lust, um, looking at soft porn, hard porn, all the way up, emotional affair, adultery. And the type of sin is one of the things that can determine the impact. But one of the things that we have to be careful of there is a lesser betrayal 
can become a word like minor surgery. Uh, It only makes sense if you're not the one experiencing it. And one of the things that very often happens in the area of suffering, and it's one of the things that troubles me greatly, is we treat suffering like it's a competitive sport. As if because somebody else suffered worse than I did, then my suffering really doesn't matter or it shouldn't affect me that much. And one of the things that you'll hear me say frequently is that just because somebody else got hit by a truck doesn't mean my knee surgery hurts any less. Suffering is not a competitive sport. And so even as we go through this type of sin impact or we go through the other things that determine impact, don't go, don't go through this going, well, you know, I only had four of ten, so it probably wasn't that bad. I'm just overreacting. I need to just suck it up and get over this. Uh, that is a form of silencing yourself that, uh, that is not healthy. But another thing that determines the impact is the length of sin. It, the longer the sin was, the longer it's probably going to take to remove from your spouse's life. And the less you may feel like you know them and your story. Another thing is the degree of impact. Uh, There's much more confusion and, I'm sorry, the degree of lying. There's much more confusion and fear uh, when your spouse has been deceitful for an extended period of time. There's a whole lot more of your own life that you have to learn and unlearn when your spouse has been deceitful. Another thing is the number of times that your spouse has been caught and repeated the offense. Because the more times they get caught, the less you believe things will be different this time. Uh, The number of incomplete disclosures. The more times they tell you they've told you everything and everything is not everything, you begin to think good news is just an incomplete story. The closeness of the people and places involved. If it involved a friend, if something happened in your home, if it was the computer in your uh, family room, all of a sudden there are more and more triggers in your day-to-day life just to bring this up, and that increases the level of impact. Uh, The social and economic impact. Uh, If the infidelity was with a friend, uh, if there was a change in the workplace that a job was lost or there was a demotion, And there were these involuntary sacrifices that you had to make. Uh, The risk factors involved in sin. Uh, Unprotected sex. uh, STDs, the risk of a child. uh, Jeopardizing their job. Uh, The more risk factors, the less protected and safe that you feel. And I would say this is particularly true when it is the husband's uh, sexual sin. Because one of the husband's primary roles is to protect. And when the risk of sin so shuns that responsibility, then the insecurity that it creates can be even greater. Uh, The accusations of the spouse while they're defending their sin. When somebody's in the midst of sin, we, I think if we're honest, we all know what it is to be sin stupid. When we're just in the midst of our sin and we're defending it, and we say lots of dumb stuff. And yet, even things that we say when we're sin-stupid still hurts and becomes part of the impact. And then finally, the interpretation that I place on my sin. Uh, That is probably one of the biggest impacts, and that's why we'll spend chapters 4, 5, and 6 looking at that. 
And now Stephanie Carnes comes back again. And she says, many partners find themselves making compromises in the relationship that lead to the level that lead to the loss of their sense of self. Examples include acting against our own morals, values, or beliefs, as well as giving up on life goals, hobbies, and interests. Other examples include changing your dress or appearance to accommodate uh, the addict or accepting the addict's sexual norms as your own. You may have struggles with feelings of unworthiness or perfectionism. As a result, you have settled for feeling needed in the relationship and compromised yourself to keep the peace or feel valued. This is one of those places where I would come back again and just critique the way that we often talk about relationships. I would say many of us, maybe even most of us, don't even know how to talk about relationships without needs being the primary word that we use. And if we use need to explain why I do what I do, then when you sin, it's because I didn't meet your needs. And that becomes this blame-shifting mechanism. But it is such a pervasive word in the way that we think about relationships that when I talk about this with couples, they look at me kind of bewildered. How else am I supposed to think about relationships? Uh, and, and so much of here, we see the need for a healthy view of sex before we start accommodating each other's preferences. Uh, that's something that we covered in chapter 6 and 7 of False Love. We'll talk more about here because unless we have a healthy view of sex, we only know what we're running from. We don't know what we're running to. And that again makes us feel very fearful and disoriented. Now in terms of impact, I want to go through several areas here where this impact can be felt. Uh, one is you begin to tolerate an unhealthy lifestyle. Uh, maybe it's keeping the computer in a low traffic area of your home. Not communicating about your schedules. Having blocks of unaccounted for time. Having separate budgets. Having unmonitored spending. Recreating in mixed gendered settings without your spouse. Allowing personal hobbies or work to cry out time for marriage. Crude language about sex. Responding in anger to questions. Or a growing disinterest in sex. Because one of the things that tends to happen when we have a crisis like this, let me give you this picture. In your mind, picture mountains. When I ask you to picture mountains, what do you see? Well, chances are what you see is snow-capped peaks. But there's a lot more to a mountain than a snow-capped peaks. We all know snow-capped peaks don't float. There's a lot of mountain underneath. And oftentimes when we have gotten into an area where sexual sin has become life-dominating, as pornography is prone to do and infidelity always is, all we see is the peak and we don't see all of the unhealthiness underneath that we have come to accept. And that is part of the impact is the number of things that we've begun to view as normal that aren't healthy. Now another impact of sexual sin on the marriage is a change in role or identities. Um, your role becomes that of parent, of police, of nag, of the stiff, of the rescuer. Or maybe your sense of identity, you just, you don't know who you are, or you escape into those other roles. It just, 
my sense of role and identity seems lost. Or maybe you begin to acquire some controlling tendencies. And don't hear me say that critically, because most of the time when this happens, it's not done vengefully, it's done out of self-protection. But this sense of controlling tendency becomes frequent within the marriage. And most of the time, what's trying to be controlled are just those things that are healthy. But healthy becomes controlling when we don't let the other person voluntarily choose it. When we try to impose it just because it's right, and we try to impose it against their will. Yet, controlling also is when I claim to know what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Well, Again, that makes sense because you haven't told me what you were really thinking and really feeling. And so I'm just going to put the worst case scenario on it because that's what it's always been before. But yet at the same time, I'm using that to create this unhealthy dynamic within the relationship. Maybe instead of controlling, I become inconsistent. You know, that's kind of the other side of the controlling tendency. Yet in the course of all the deceit, it began to feel like nothing I did really mattered. And so I begin to give up. Or maybe at first I enact all of these changes and I can't really keep up with them all. And so that makes me inconsistent. Or maybe I'm just so emotionally overwhelmed that that I'm not consistent at really important things having to do with just the management of the household that I was before. And if I was a really responsible person and this comes in and I begin to be inconsistent, again, I just feel like you've changed me and I resent you for it all the more. Maybe I just begin to grow passive towards life. I begin to buy the lie that nothing I do really matters anyway. Maybe I grow gullible or cynical. I just feel torn between the two. On the one hand, I've got to give you the benefit of the doubt at some point, right? On the other hand, so much of what you told me before was a plausible lie. Why would I begin to believe you now? It begins to feel like our only choice is to believe everything or to believe nothing. And that truth is just a cruel joke. And then there's this growing insecurity. Because I begin to live with this constant barrage of questions. Where I'm trying to figure out what it was about me that caused you to want to look at somebody else. To go to somebody else. Was I not smart enough? Was I not pretty enough? Was I not strong enough? Did I not show you enough attention? I mean, it feels like I am constantly on stage being evaluated. Every time that you smile or compliment somebody else, I wonder if that was it. Every one of your silences, what would you have said to them? I mean, it just it's this constant sense of insecurity where I feel like I am stuck up on stage for everybody to look at and there's just this running commentary in the back of my head about what's being said about me. Or maybe I just reduce down to this one variable life. And that variable may be different. It it could be how much time you spend on the computer. It could be how frequently we have sex. It could be the number of compliments that we give. But whatever that thing is that I am trusting that's going to make it better, I reduce my life down to that one variable. And again, we hit that effect where my world becomes smaller and smaller, and this issue is becoming bigger and bigger, and it just takes up more and more of my life. Maybe I begin to relate as a codependent. Uh, And codependent is one of those really ambiguous counselor words. You can ask 12 different counselors what it means to be codependent, and you're going to get at least 13 different answers. 
Um, it, um, and so let me offer you my definition to sing in the chorus amongst all the others. Um, codependency can be defined as a relational style built upon the false assumption that sin plays by consistent rules. And the game in codependency is to learn the rules of sin, at least the particular sin of the particular person that is affecting you, so that you can prevent the sin from occurring. The advantage to the game is that it gives you a facade of control over the other person. The problem with codependency is that the rules don't exist. Sin doesn't play by rules. One of the things we're going to talk about later is that sin is illogical. Another problem is that it makes you responsible for your spouse's sin. And the third thing is it makes your spouse's preferences your functional God. Yet, and so again, we, at this time of life when everything feels out of control, we are looking for something that will give us control. And if sin would play by the rules, if I could just understand what you wanted, what you needed, and I could do it, and I could make you not sin. It would be so nice. But that belief system, in my opinion, is the essence of codependency. It basically makes me your Jesus and you my God. I'm going to deliver you from your sin and you're going to tell me when I can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's a dynamic that can never be healthy between two people. And then a final part of the impact is post-traumatic stress. Uh, there's an inventory within your notebook there where you can take a look at that. Uh, but sexual sin can be very traumatic, and that's one of the areas that's often overlooked and neglected. Uh, now, Kathy Gallagher, um, she speaks of her own experience when her husband Steve had been uh, sexually unfaithful many times, and then he would come home repentant. He says the, she says, the affection that I wanted for so long was now mine in abundance. He was constantly waiting to hold my hand and hug me and kiss me, and I was sick. And here again, I would say that is common. Yet, that to be at that point where this is what I wanted, I kept thinking that when, when I was being neglected, when, when somebody else was getting the attention, whether it be a video image or another man or woman, that if I could just get that back, and then at that moment when I first get it, it's overwhelming. That doesn't mean the marriage is over. That just means we're not good at going from fifth gear, 85 degrees one direction, to full throttle reverse the other direction. When we change gears that fast, it internally just disrupts things. But yet that is often the very common experience when sexual sin comes out, especially when we confuse marital restoration and marital enrichment, and we try to skip straight to marital enrichment. Uh, Gary and Mona Shriver again. She says, Gary was not the man I thought he was. But I was no longer who I thought I was either. For that matter, who were we as a couple? Weren't we a couple? That night, my life took on a new timetable. Before the affair, during the affair, after the affair. Everything during uh, was now marred and distorted. Our family trip to Disneyland. Gary and I going to Hawaii. I recalled snippets of conversations with both Gary and my friend and suddenly heard and saw everything just completely different. You each will process at your own pace. Remember, the infidel began this process before the affair even began. The spouse is typically begins at revelation. And here is something that I think is incredibly important to see and understand. 
that when sexual sin enters a marriage, the two people get on two different timetables. And it usually begins with the one who is being unfaithful, either on the computer or with another person. There's this sense of shock. Am I really going to? No, they're not interested in me. I'm not going to do this. Denial, no. That, 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 wasn't, what, that wasn't really flirting. Um, then uh, anger, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is stupid. This is wrong. I'm, no, bargain. I'm not going to let it go that far. I won't. I'm not going to let anybody get hurt. I won't cross that line. We're just friends. I'm telling myself all of this. Then I cross that line and I immediately feel down. There's this sense of depression. I beat myself up. I feel awful. And then for a period of time, it it feels normal. There's this sense of acceptance of I'm getting away with it. Maybe I can really have the best of both worlds. They almost forgive themselves for what they've done. And usually, the person who's being unfaithful has made that full journey. They get lazy. Their story comes out. And you start that journey. You start finding stuff and there's this sense of shock and denial. No, this can't be it. This really can't be going on. It gets confirmed. And you're angry. And you're you're asking questions and you're condemning and you're going, no, this can't be. It's wrong. And then you realize... And you're asking all these questions, bargaining. What did I do? And you're trying to figure it out, try to make it better. What can be done? And you realize nothing can be done and you get down. And the whole time you're wondering, how can they be so heartless? How can they be unmoved? Well, it's because they've been taking this journey for weeks or months or sometimes years. And that's part of the reason why when you go through this material, my verbal presentation and the written material, it will feel like it doesn't match up that we're at step two here and step five there. Why can't we just synchronize this stuff? I did as best I could and felt like it would be authentic to the experience of what you were going through. But because you're on such different timetables, that is something that just can't be given. Now coming out of that, another piece of the impact here in terms of that interaction that often comes with the being on two timetables is we fall into the principle of least interest trap. Principle of least interest just means the person who is least interested in the relationship holds the most power. And so initially, the unfaithful person is least interested in the relationship, and so they hold all the power. They get found out, and now the person who has been faithful, they are the one who are least interested. They're in the position of power. Well, then maybe they start to go back to the person that they had been unfaithful with. Now they're less, and we start playing this ping pong match of power. And we begin to think that the only way that we can win is by not caring. And the marriage begins to operate on the basis of power and leverage rather than love and sacrifice. And oftentimes it's in the midst of this that we can coerce change for the better. But even that coerced change for the better oftentimes has detrimental effects to the overall health of the marriage. Because we're learning to play a power game. And that is why uh, when we talk about priority 
and we go through this. Uh, you cannot force your spouse to go through the false love study. What we have tried to do there is to show them what repentance would look like so that these don't come across as your unreasonable emotional demands because you're just hurt and this is what you're trying to say to get back at me and I know I messed up and I, 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 okay, I know that, but when is enough enough? And it doesn't come across as your demands, but that this is a resource that is meant to walk us through. And by it not being your demands, we're not getting in that principle of least interest trap. Because one of the things that we have to do, and it's the hope of these studies, is to begin to separate change from power. That is a vital distinction for the long-term health of the marriage. It's actually just another way of defining trust. Because at this stage in the game, too often we define trust as just meaning, I've got to be willing to let you hurt me again. But let me offer you an alternative definition of trust that I think fits this stage of the journey better. Trust is the belief that reasonable requests will be honored without the need for relational leverage. And so when I begin to feel like I have to apply relational leverage in order to get you to do what you ought to do, okay, that's a pretty good sign that trust is not warranted right now. That's not one of those areas where I need to beat myself up. That is probably an area where somebody else needs to be involved in our marriage. A counselor, an accountability partner, somebody. Because if we just try to do this, we're going to get caught in the principle of least interest trap. We're going to talk much more about trust in chapter 7. Uh, Shirley Glass, she says, an affair erodes their carefully constructed security system. Their meaning husband and wife. It erects an interior wall uh, of secrecy between the marriage partner. At the same time, it opens a window of intimacy between the affair partners. The couple is no longer a unit. The affair partner is on the inside and the marital partner is on the outside. You know, here I'll make one simple point. Honesty is what determines insiders and outsiders. Whoever you are honest with is on the inside. And whoever you are less than honest with in any way is on the outside. And when you, through full disclosure, begin to be honest, with your spouse, you are reestablishing your spouse as an insider. When you will no longer give information to protect or honor the feelings of your adultery partner, you are establishing them as an outsider. It is a very simple but profound and often difficult principle to apply. Honesty is what determines who the insiders and who the outsiders are. 